to go ahead and start <coughs> because of how much just have a little bit more content than usual um, just a little bit and so I just want to make sure that I have enough time also for questions as well so let's go ahead and start um, this little mini section that we're in right now chapters 28 through 30 um, Megan, can you shut the, the doors, please? I'm, I'm so sorry. Just because of the recording, I don't want it to be too loud. Um, thank you so much. Uh, so chapters 28 through 30 deal with uh, baptism in the Lord's Supper. Chapter 28, um, titled, Of Baptism in the Lord's Supper. 29, Of Baptism. 30, um, Of the Lord's Supper. And we only dealt with chapter 28 last week, but I upon further investigation discovered that there were some things that we needed to make sure to, to discuss. Um, <clears throat> so this week we're going to discuss the doctrine, uh, the Bible's teaching on baptism. Uh, we'll just go ahead and read paragraph one of chapter 29. And this is the modern version. It says this, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to those, bapt to those baptized. Sorry, I'm, I'm reading this very poorly. Period. To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk and newness of life. So, um, before we move on, never uh, neglect the opportunity to jot down moments in the in Reformed confessional documents in which Christ is mentioned. Um, because you can use all of those references as ammunition um, when you're having a discussion with someone who says that reform, the Reformed tradition is too stuffy and it's not about Jesus. Um, I believe that the Second London, most especially, is actually it's all about Christ. And anything, and I try to do that to the best of my ability, I try to show that anytime you even get to any part of the confession's teaching, um, Christ is at the center of that doctrine, and you need to show that that is the case. Um, and so, defining what baptism is, Jesus is right here. Jesus is at the center of this definition. This sign, um, this ordinance, is given by Jesus Christ. Um, notice some things about this. Um, it's given by Jesus, and it's given by Jesus to be a symbol or a picture of a few things, four things. One, it's a sign of fellowship with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Um, sounds like Megan might already be there. 
Romans chapter 6. And re- really, when you scan the New Testament data, this is one of the best passages of Scripture, I believe, in the New Testament to actually explain to us theologically why we dip, why we believe in, in immersion. On this text, there's a fantastic sermon by a Pado-Baptist minister. He's not a Credo-Baptist. Um, Sinclair Ferguson. And, he, and a smile cracks in the corner of his mouth when he says... We have been immersed into Christ, if you will. <laughs> and I think he smiles because he knows. <laughs> that, you know What is baptism intended to actually represent? It's intended to represent immersion into Christ and his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. Um, well, immersed into death with Christ and raised with Christ. Um, what shall we say then, Romans 6, verse 1? Are we to continue in sin by, that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And it goes on to give logic that goes something like this. Will Christ ever die again? No. Neither will the believer ever die. Therefore, Therefore, do not sin. (laughs) That should be our thought process. This is true. Christ will never die. I will never die. I will never be condemned. Therefore, I should devote myself to never sinning, trying to never sin, trying to obey the Lord. And you can think like this too. You can ask yourself when you're being tempted, you you can remind yourself of your baptism. You can say, um... This is does not behoove behavior. Um, I'm probably saying that wrongly. This is not becoming of someone who's been baptized into the family name. This decision, this behavior, this act is not becoming of a Christian. It's also a sign of fellowship with um union with Christ, the confession says, so not just a sign of fellowship with him in his burial and his Resurrection, but also a sign of union with Christ. And I'm going to read now, just for a moment, I'm going to be reading some verses rather than flipping to them. Colossians 2 gets at this idea really well, a sign of union with Christ. Verse 11, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. There's that language from Romans 6 again in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. But the key words there are in him. Um, but I, I want to also mention that verse, not just to prove that baptism is a sign of union with Christ, but also to say this, because this verse will be used by paedo-baptists who want to baptize their infants. They'll say, see, baptism is just 
circumcision, you know, just replaces circumcision. It was applied to um, believers and their infants. So also this should be baptism, which replaces it, should be uh, applied to believers and their infants. And the, the issue with that is that um, there is definitely a comparison and an analogy, but that does not necessarily equate the covenant that those signs represent the covenants that those signs represent with each other. Because there's an analogy between circumcision and baptism does not mean that the substance of the covenants that they are signs of are equal. That does not mean that. But there could be an analogy, and I think this is the analogy. Circumcision is a type of baptism. I think that baptism is antitypical. I think that circumcision points to baptism. I think that the sign of the old covenant, just like the old covenant itself, points to the sign of the new covenant. And just like the old covenant points to the new covenant itself. And Dr. Waldron, Sam Waldron, says it this way. Baptism professes what circumcision demanded. You know that Deuteronomy verse? It says... You know, they they have been circumcised. They're part of the national covenant. They were part of the national covenant. They were. There's no question about it. They were in the old covenant. They were by being born into it. And then Moses says, now circumcise your hearts. Moses was an evangelist. He, in the old covenant, to the national people of Israel said, you're dead in Adam, believe in Christ. That was Moses' point. What was the point of Israel? Well, the point of Israel was it was to hold that promise, to protect it and develop it and announce it. To announce condemnation in the first Adam, but promise of life in the second Adam. Um, So circumcision comes upon the old people of the old covenant people of Israel. Hey, this is outward sign. Now it needs to be an inward reality is what Dr. Waldron is saying. But he goes on. um, Circumcision did indeed demand a new heart, but it did not profess a new heart. Baptism, however, professes a new heart. So whereas in the old covenant, if you were circumcised, it didn't necessarily mean you had a new heart, but it meant that you should have one. You should... You... Um, it was not expected of you to necessarily um, have a new heart to belong to the old covenant, right? You had the sign, you were in the old covenant. But what was that sign and what was that covenant demanding of you? Become a member of the new. You see what I'm saying? Whereas in the new covenant, the sign of the new covenant is a declaration, I am a member of the new covenant. I have been baptized as an announcement that I do have a new heart. I have believed in the gospel and I have repented of my sins. Galatians 3.27, I think, makes this pretty plain. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Who can say that if they are not believers? 
If you have been baptized, you have put on Christ. Why? Because only those who've put on Christ have been baptized. That's the assumption, I think. But that's the logic. So it is a sign of union with Christ. It is a picture. It is intended to communicate that this has happened. This is a fact. It is also a sign of remission of sins. The confession goes on to say, and I'm just going to read these. I don't think this will take very much proving, so I'll read them and move on. Mark 1, 4. John appeared, baptizing them in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I recognize that John's baptism and the baptism of Jesus are not... There are some differences. I recognize that. But you could say that John's baptism was a proto-baptism. Right? It's kind of laying the foundation for new covenant baptisms. And you see this because in Acts 13, 24-25, it says this. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John was finishing his course. He said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, one after me is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Pointing to the fact that when Christ comes, he is going to be... Uh, that, basically, John is just saying, I am transitioning between the, the old and new age. What's that? Um, I'm good, brother. I appreciate it. I do have some. Thank you so much, though. Um. So now, so 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 John is saying, "Hey, Christ is coming, and 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 the new covenant is coming, and the sign of the new covenant means this: that your sins have been washed away." Acts twenty two sixteen. And why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on His name. So there. Even though it's not John's baptism, that's Acts 22, and yet it still says, be baptized, wash away your sins. Why? Because the sign of baptism pictures a washing away of sin. It also symbolizes, it is also a sign of new life. I'm going to quote Acts 22.16 to you again. I think that it proves the previous point and this one. Acts twenty two sixteen. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins. And call upon his name. So when you're baptized, you're not only repenting of your sins, but you are devoting and, and, and believe in the gospel, but you are saying, I am devoting my life to Christ. And when you're evangelizing, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. When you're evangelizing, if you want to know how to press faith upon someone you're evangelizing, and you and, and let's say because this is what we deal with a lot in, in our in the South. Let's say that you're dealing with a nominal Christian, someone you believe to be falsely claiming the name of Christ. They don't go to church, and they they 
don't care to attend the ordinances. They don't love Christians. They love the world, and they live lives that are contrary to baptism. Press the demands of church membership upon them. If you're really, you know, so I'm thinking of an example. I, I have a, have a dear friend. Actually, um, whether or not he actually is a Christian is kind of irrelevant. But in conversation, I like to press upon him because he claims the name of Christ, and he, and he does actually have a, a better. "Quote, quote, you know, more fruit of you know, more Christian fruit than other people do that I, that I know that bear the name of Christ and are hypocrites, but this this guy does actually bear some Christian fruit, uh, and yet he he just refuses to join himself to a local church, um, and you you know, um, I think that for him and for others who are hypocritically claiming the name of Christ." Press upon them faithfulness to a local church. Press upon them faithfulness to the ordinances of the gospel. Press upon them what it looks like to live a life that is consistent with baptism that claims I am in the fa- I bear the family name. Press that upon them. Um, one more thing. I'm gonna get a little on a little soapbox here for just a moment. I'd rather that in a fight against nominal Christianity than another thing that I've seen as a fight against nominal Christianity. And it's this. You, you've heard this before, probably. Going to church don't make you a Christian. Being baptized don't make you a Christian. No more than being in a McDonald's makes you a hamburger. You pray, you know, and we kind of make up our own lists that are a lot more subjective to challenge the nominality of a profession. I, I don't like that approach as much actually as virtually the opposite. Are you faithful to a local church? Do you faithfully observe the Sabbath? Do you love the things of God? And do you love Christians? Do you see the difference there? Because in the other approach, it's actually a challenge to believing in the institution itself. De facto, you know, I'm a Christian. But my approach, I would rather actually challenge their hypocrisy by saying, you actually aren't faithful to the institution." Is what I just said, does what I just said make sense? So in our evangelism, in our challenging nominalism, don't mock the church. Actually push upon them. Are you actually faithful to the local church? You know, don't say things, I don't recommend you say things like, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. I don't recommend you say things like that. I would actually recommend that you say, that you actually press the demands of church membership upon them. Press the demands of, sab- uh, of Sabbath observance and worship upon them. You know, if they're indifferent to going to church, actually say these words. If you don't go to church, and this is to this guy, I've talked to him about this before. He says, you know, just because you go to church, uh, it doesn't make you a Christian. And, uh, and I say, actually, I think you're in sin. And, and I think that not going to church, and I'm challenging nominalism by doing this. 
I think that not going to church indicates that you may not be a Christian. Do you, do you see the difference there? I actually, I'm not sure why the challenging nominalism has resulted in uh, implying that the institution is no good and pointless. <laughs> I don't, I don't fully understand that. I, I think the opposite is actually more helpful and clearer. Challenging unfaithfulness as a church member, challenging their lives, saying it's inconsistent with baptism, challenging their lives as your your behavior on the Lord's day is inconsistent with what you claim to be. You know, that's I think that would actually be better. Um, and 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 some of that even has it, uh, it, it interfaces with this mindset that you know it's not about a religion, it's about relationship. But the Bible uses the word religion and established religion. We've talked about the church. It's not just organ, an organism. It's also a religion and an institution. And and so it's both, you know. And so you press the religion upon them and a personal relationship with Jesus upon them. Um, getting back to baptism. Those are the signs. That last point is that baptism is a sign of new life. Baptism is claiming I am united to Christ and I am following Him and I'm faithful to Him and uh, I want to join a local church and covenant with them and I want them to challenge me when my life is inconsistent with my claim. Um, there are a lot of things I have to skip over but I need to um, for time's sake. There are other very important things I need to touch on. Any questions on that, though, on paragraph one? Rather simple. Maybe you've noticed we do this a lot. There's something simply stated in the confession, but we just cannot simply assume it. We have to prove it from Scripture. So I hope that those verses convince you that that is what baptism symbolizes. And the fact that that's what baptism symbolizes, if that is true, that that's what the Bible teaches, it impacts the way that we approach who are the subjects? Doesn't it? If that's what baptism symbolizes, union with Christ, remission of sins, dedication to the Lord Jesus. The next logical conclusion would be that this is a decision that must be made and infants cannot make that decision. So look at paragraph two. Do not be deceived. It is short, but it is complex and dense okay those who personally profess repentance toward god and faith in and obedience to our lord jesus christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance the proper subjects of baptism in the new testament are those who have repented and believed the gospel if you, I'm just going to read these. If you uh, just, I encourage you to pay attention to the verse, the verses. Um, if you have any questions about them, let me know. But I'm just going to read them off to you and ask yourself: Does the do you think the these verses teach what this confession says that the only proper subjects are those who repented and believed? Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
Acts 2.41, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 8.12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Acts 8.36-37, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. (laughs) And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Um, Acts 18.8 Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord Together with his entire household. So I'm not going to deal with this passage in a moment because it it says that he believed and his household believed. And and therefore, he and his household were baptized because everyone in the household believed. I mean, goodness. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Any questions about those verses? I, I think it is clear as day. But there are very smart men who don't think it's as clear as day. And so you wouldn't be, I think, a total weirdo to disagree or challenge them. Just let me know. You talk about it. Um, um The proper, think about what we talked about when we defined our terms about, you know, the different ways we can speak about the church and one of the ways we can speak about the church is visible. Think about that. The proper subjects of baptism are visible saints. I want to reread paragraph two of chapter 26 so that you understand what I believe the confession rightly says is the Bible's teaching on who should be the subject of baptism. And it though these paragraphs do not teach that that directly, but this is what they teach. These are the subjects of church membership. And therefore, I think they indirectly teach these are the these must be the subjects of baptism. Second London twenty six two. All people throughout the world who profess the faith in the gospel and obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel are and may be called visible saints, as long as they do not destroy their profession by any foundational errors or unholy living. All local congregations, this is why I say this teaches what church membership qualifications ought to be. All local congregations ought to be made up of these. So if you teach contrary to Trinitarian theology, you cannot be admitted into the church. Do you have to fully comprehend it? No, but you must, you must 
be able to say, I confess that this is true and that this is what the Bible teaches. Are you a whoremonger? Then you cannot be admitted into the church. So pure. So basically, foundational theology and sin, sin of the mind, sin of the heart, disqualifies someone from church membership. Also, look with me at... Um, Paragraph 6 of that same chapter. The members of these churches are saints. Visible, right? The ones you can see. By calling. Visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession and life. What they say and how they live. Same thing as paragraph 2. Their obedience to the call of Christ. They willingly agree to live together according to Christ's instructions giving themselves to the Lord and to one another so they're covenanting to be members with one another with the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel and that phrase is not unique to the second London the reformed paedo-baptists who had an independent view of the doctrine of the church. They wrote that. And the Baptists borrowed it in their confession. This will have massive implications for us later. The proper subjects of baptism are visible saints. The proper subject of baptism is not those who certainly are assured of their salvation. but those who profess to believe the gospel and do not have a, an unholy life that disqualifies that profession. You see, does, is that clear what I'm trying to say? That those are the proper subjects of baptism. But notice how this compares with the Westminster just very quickly. <clears throat> Actually, I'm, I'm not going to read that. Uh, but I will um, I will say this you can go and read the Westminster if you want to on this but I will say that this is what Dr. Sam Waldron says on it and I think it's helpful quote when infants are baptized it is proclaimed to them and about them that they are in union with Christ and that they have pure hearts and are forgiven. Right? Is that not... Ask yourself, does circumcision... Did circumcision in the Old Testament... Does the Old Testament teach that circumcision meant that they were forgiven of their sins? <laughs> it just sounds ridiculous even saying it. And that they have repented of their sins and that they were converted and full of the Holy Spirit. No! It does not teach that. The opposite. Go read Jeremiah 31. No, it does not teach that. It demands it. Hey, this must be true about you. But it does not profess it. 
that this has happened to you. Here's what circumcision does mean. You're part of the national people of God. You are. It does not mean that they all were by virtue of being circumcised in Christ. Baptism professes, though, that that is the case. And so if you were to baptize a child, what are you telling them? You're in Christ. You have been forgiven of your sins. And then, you know, there's diversity even among some of those that would baptize infants. But for the most part, this is what you can ask someone if you're ever in conversation with them. Do you believe that your child is in Adam and in Christ at the same time? It's impossible. That's why we don't baptize infants. We don't baptize those who have not made a credible profession of faith. Here are some, I kind of got ahead of myself just slightly. Here are some credo-baptist responses to the pedo-baptist position. Um, Baptism must only be given to the new covenant people of God. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. Who are those that are in the new covenant. If those who are, if you can prove that those in the new covenant are those in Christ, then baptism only belongs to those who make a profession of faith that they are in Christ, right? Another thing that we could say against, uh, in response to the Pedobaptist position, baptism, like the Lord's Supper, must be held, I'm sorry, withheld from unbelievers. Dr. Waldron says this, quote, if the argument from circumcision, I love this. <clears throat> he didn't say that part. That was me. <laughs> that would be funny though. If the argument from circumcision overshadows the demand for faith, why doesn't the argument from Passover overshadow the New Testament demand for self-examination? So he's saying, Pado-Baptists, they don't want their children to partake, most of them, partake of the Lord's Supper unless they've made a credible profession of faith. What? I thought they were in the covenant. And they say, well, I don't know. It's, Calvin makes a kind of, I think, I don't even think it's worthy of mentioning Calvin makes an argument. But what Waldron is saying, I just want to tell you what Waldron is saying is if you make a connection between circumcision and baptism, why can't you make a circum... Which is, right, baptism is antitypical of circumcision. Why can't you say that the Lord's Supper is antitypical of Passover and Passover was given to them? So, just doesn't make any sense. Here's another, here's another response. Every single instance of household baptism in the New Testament can be explained without assuming 
that infants were in the household. I don't know if you guys were able to watch the, the video. I just kind of shared it on a whim, but I did share this video debate between Sproul and MacArthur. It's not the it's not the best debate. It's actually it's kind of an example of how not to debate, and it's kind of comical at some points. But they make a point um, of what to uh, that both the Pado Baptist and the Credo Baptist are they have to make assumptions about those passages in the New Testament that say that households were baptized. You you do. You either have to assume that infants were there or you have to make other Credo Baptist assumptions. And I think that the Credo Baptist assumptions are more reasonable. And I'll I'll tell them to you. Lydia Lydia's household is baptized in Acts 10, 1 through 2. Why would we assume, though, that she had infants? Never mentions that she even has a husband. It does say that she has a household, but no mention is ever made of infants or a a spouse. There were more likely, based upon the historical context, and what we know about her and where she was from and all that, they're more likely domestics, friends, business associates, um, and maybe even servants. <clears throat> if those who were more likely other women, which is more likely? Which is more likely? That all believed and were baptized? Right? Because what if it wasn't just infants? What if it was even an unbeliever that was a servant in her house? Were they baptized too? What's the more likely assumption? That all believed and were baptized? Or that all were baptized regardless of personal faith? And a lot of people about this aren't comfortable once you start to bring up, what if you have an unbelieving spouse? It's like actually living contrary to the gospel. Should they be baptized too? The Philippians jailer is said to be baptized in uh, Acts 16 uh, in his household too. But here's the thing about the Philippian jailer. It says that his whole household, I actually really like the King James translation, um, which I I have reason to believe is is an accurate reflection of the original text, um, that his whole household believed. But our modern translations have, because of some variances, they've, they've... nuanced it and it it doesn't say that all of his household believed but it still says that along with the Philippian jailers belief they rejoiced with his salvation okay so still indicates that they were believers I mean why would you (laughs) I hate Jesus but I'm gonna rejoice with you you know it just doesn't make any sense it's like it's most likely that along with the Philippian jailer his entire household believed I'm making that assumption based off of what the text says, but a Pado Baptist would say, uh, the, "No, there were infants baptized there." Yeah, but but how do you know? I'm just assuming that there were because it says because it says oikos household. Okay, well, that's kind of bizarre to me. Um, Stephanus's household was baptized according to First Corinthians one sixteen. But it's also in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 said to have ministered to the saints. His entire household ministered to the saints. 
So yeah, Stephanus' household, they were baptized, right. But they were all believers is the more likely explanation of those two passages. Not, yeah, well, they, they all ministered, but I'm assuming that there were infants too that were unbelieving. Um, and, then, and then there's Cornelius' household too. Um, it may require some assumption, but here's the thing about Cornelius' household. And all the, it's more likely that everyone in his household believed because Acts 10.46 says they extolled God. <laughs> can, an, can an infant do that? Yes, they can. There's John the Baptist. But that's a different story. <laughs> Acts 11 says that God, which is right after that, about Cornelius' household, says that God poured out the Holy Spirit upon them and that they believed and that they repented. So the text actually says that Cornelius' household believed and repented, but a paedo-baptist ignores that and says, and, and there were unbelieving infants. It just doesn't make any sense. It's, it is a fair assumption, but it is a less likely assumption. Right? That those in that household repented and believed. That's more likely. And instead of assuming... Uh, I kind of already said that. Um, and here's one more other thing about all the texts I just read. We should be shocked at those. I mean, that should be something that we rejoice in. And we would be today if an entire if someone in a household believed the gospel and everyone in that household repented and believed we I mean we would rejoice um, and not quibble over 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 other silly things so it just I think we should see this as just the Lord was at work and praise God that so many before it was four or five or so uh, households uh, repented and believed. I want to get through a couple of things here, so just bear with me, and and, and floor is open for questions um, after. I just want to make sure to get through this. Here's a question that could be posed after paragraph two. When should I baptize my child? You ready? Eighteen. I'm just kidding. Um... Mark Dever said that. But here's the thing about what, when Mark Dever said it. Mark Dever gave a very, I thought, nuanced um, and logical explanation that wasn't just as simple as saying 18. He, you know, he allowed for some flexibility and, and things like that. At the end, he says, now, I was tempted to comically get up here and say 18 and sit down. <laughs> Um, you know, if I was to do the same thing, I'd say 12. If I just, you know, if you could just pick an age, Caleb, if you had a gun to your head and you could just pick an age when someone should be baptized, what would you say? I don't know, 12 maybe. Maybe 13. There, there's some, 
there are some Old Testament reasons I, I might would say that. But here's the thing. Um, they're really the the New Testament really does not come down hard on that, and so. What I would say, I would say this is the disposition that a parent should have regarding their child's baptism. You should rejoice with trembling. If they are making a profession of faith, you shouldn't be too quick to admit, nor should you be too cautious um, in, and uh, be forbidding. I think we should have Jesus' attitude. It's summed up for us in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6, and Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15, and I encourage you to look at them. I do not believe that either of those passages, especially the latter, indicate in the slightest that though that they were infants brought to Jesus. They were children who wanted to come to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Do not forbid them to come to me. So we need to listen to Jesus and not forbid them to come. If I were to give a practical, some practical advice, if I was in the shoes of a parent of a child who maybe was, let's say, five, and I probably wouldn't even bring it up. But let's say that the child brought it up. and You know, Iris brought, brings it up and says, I want to be baptized. She's five, you know, six. Obviously, the relationship I have with my child as well plays in a significant role. But I would probably say something like, um, I don't want you to be pressured to be baptized. You call yourself a Christian and I believe you. Um. But what would you say, Iris, if we waited one year? And let's pray about this and let's talk. Um, and if in a year you still want to be baptized and you insist and you've answered the, these questions, Daddy will baptize you, okay? Um, now, if she still fights tooth and nail and insists and is is professing the gospel, and then at that point, I... I think it would be wrong for me to either pressure her to be baptized, right? Or forbid her to be baptized. She's coming to Jesus. And I think I should baptize her. But she may say, okay, Daddy, I'll wait a year. And let's just pray about it. But why? And what I'm communicating to that little girl is I'm saying, look, I, I'm not concerned about whether or not you're baptized. I'm concerned about whether or not you're a Christian. So I don't want you to put all your eggs in this basket. Let's wait a little while and make sure you understand the faith of the gospel. It's trying to be respectful as a father. Here are some questions you could ask your child or to think through. Does your child demonstrate sorrow and remorse, remorse for sin? <laughs> remorse for sin. Remorse, yeah. Does your child recognize that they have sinned against God, not just against others? You know, is there just civil remorse? I'm going to get a, a banking. Or is it I have sinned against God? Oh, I'm so glad the Lord brought this to my mind as I'm going through this. I love this little story from uh, Fred's daughter, Fred Malone's daughter. That every time they would sin, Brother Fred, and he was immovable in many respects, he would very calmly, before he, he's already talked with the children, you know, if you do X, Y, or Z, you will get a 
you will receive this punishment. So let's say it was spanking, and he'd ask, I think her name is uh, Joanna. You know, what commandment have you broken, Joanna? <laughs> okay, well, you're going to get a spanking because we talked about if you do this, then you will get a spanking. I want to teach your children that uh, sin is not just against other people, but it's against God. Does your child confess her sins to God and ask for mercy without you prompting? That's something to think about as you're thinking about whether or not your child is saved. Does your child confess sins? Did I just say that? Okay. Does your child uh, demonstrate commitment to Christ in the midst of strong temptation to disobey? That's, that convicts me. Um, does your child... Here's a personal thing that I feel very strongly about. Does your child know the catechism for boys and girls? That's a that's a catechism uh, series of questions and answers based off of the Westminster, uh, which would also be based off of the Baptist catechism. Um, I think that uh, probably when you're dealing with children, it's it's best to ensure that they know the catechism and that they. You know, there are a number of questions you could ask them. Why not just ask them the 80 or so questions that have already been written out by Reformed people smarter than you? So just use that. And if they know them and they say that they believe them and their life is consistent with it, forbid them not. And then you could also ask them, why do you want to be baptized? And what do you understand baptism to signify? So let me say just a couple more things. And then questions. And I'm going to get through three and four here very quickly. This is the older version. And it deals with the outward elements. And that is water and the triune name in paragraph three. And then the mode, which would be immersion. Paragraph three. The outward element to be used in this ordinance is water. Wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I'm adding this phrase, which is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. Second, this paragraph four says immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary for the due administration of this ordinance. The point is, this is the most orderly way to do baptism. Okay, why water? Probably against the Quakers who didn't believe that water was necessary but they believed in more spiritual baptisms which is Bologna Bologna, sorry um, just made up a word Bologna so I'm just getting really jacked up because I'm excited about this little part here um, Acts 8.38 I think teaches this he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water and Philip the eunuch and he was baptized. Matthew 28, 19, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paragraph four, I think teaches, and, and really it's the entire idea of due administration, which means proper. This is most proper. Something may be improper, but not illegal. Something may be more disorderly and not necessarily illegitimate and sin. So let me just, I'm going to try to read this slowly. 
and not give any qualifications. And if you have any questions about this, let me know. But I spent a lot of time on these words here. Okay? I believe that the final determining factor in whether or not a baptism is true is whether or not the church was a true church. And for me, this comes down to granting church membership or refusing church membership. So let me give you two hypotheticals. If someone was baptized by a false church and they wanted to join ours, let's say a Mormon church, I would tell them they could not join our church unless they are willing to be rebaptized. If they refused rebaptism after I have clearly demonstrated that their church and baptism are false and illegitimate, I, ref I would I would personally refuse them church membership. I guess that that would have to be brought before the church and things like that. But I'm telling you what I would, where I would like to be. Here's a second hypothetical. However, if someone was baptized by a pedo-baptist church as an infant, and thus before, um, and thus before, they believed that they were converted. And it was a true church, right? It's a true Reformed church. And they wanted to join our church. The following words I have all caps, emboldened, and italicized. Okay? I would strongly encourage them as long as I had energy Please be rebaptized. But if they have poor theology in this area and they have a guilty conscience regarding rebaptism for whatever reason, I would not personally recommend that the church refuse that person church membership. Although I would have to submit to the will of the church. But I would not vote that way. And I may even say something like, look, I don't care, but the church might, so you really might want to be rebaptized, okay? I am not convinced from Scripture or the particular Baptist standards that someone who is currently identified as a true Christian, that's why we read paragraphs 2 and 6 of chapter 26. That... And my view is what identifies whether or not someone should be admitted in the church. If I know that they're Christian, but they're just not sure when their conversion is taking place, I cannot, in a good conscience, refuse them membership in a church. Upon exhaustive study, well, an attempted exhausted study, James Renahan and Tom Hicks takes this view. That's not me to pull an authority card. It's to say I'm in a stream of faithful witnesses that I believe to be faithful witnesses that they do they they believe that it would be wrong to shut off membership from someone who was baptized as an infant but does not want to be rebaptized. That that's not what the confession meant when it said they must be submitted to the ordinances. Finished. Any questions about anything we talked about?
No questions at all? No pushback? No confusion? That's either a good sign or a bad sign. No pressure. You don't have to. I just really expected some conversation. Which is very controversial. What I just said is very controversial. Some of the things in, in certain Reformed Baptist circles. Um, some, some nuances can be rather controversial. But I believe is faithful to the confession and scripture. Going once, going twice. Well, cool. I know that this was uh, maybe not as worshipful <laughs> on the tail end as the front end when we're considering Christ. But um, um, just draw your attention, the attention of your soul to paragraph one. What is it all about? It's all about Christ. It's all about a sign of union with him. And there's one thing. I will, so I'll, if there's no questions, I'll close with this. Um, almost every time Sinclair Ferguson, who's a paedo-baptist, mentions baptism, he gives a loving, respectful little, little jab at our debates among credo and paedo-baptists about the mode and method of baptism. And I referenced earlier a sermon on Romans 6, which is phenomenal if you can get a chance to listen to it on YouTube. And he he cracks a smile and he goes, we've been immersed, if you will. And everybody chuckles and he says, and how dare us spend so much time talking about the mode or more time talking about the mode than the meaning. So let's not forget in our attempt to try to say we think this would be the most proper and orderly mode Let's not forget what it means. And as I thought through baptism the last couple of weeks, I was super blessed in my soul as I thought, baptism is a sign that I bear the family name, union with Christ. How amazing it is that I was baptized in the true church with faithful brothers and sisters that saw, and if I ever slip, I'll get a phone call probably from a couple of them. You know, wondering, what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, you know, you covenanted. You bear the family name. It's beautiful that that's what baptism symbolizes, union with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we are so grateful that you have loved us so much to bring us near to Christ. And we're so grateful, Father, that you forbid us not. If we want to come, you do, you do not forbid us. And you bring us. You save us. And then, Lord, you give us this beautiful little thing that we call baptism. It's not little. Actually, it's very big. It changes. It literally orients our entire lives to Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would press the reality of the meaning of baptism upon our hearts and that you would help us now to go forth and to attempt to live faithful to that sign. In Jesus' name, amen.